co-designing something is sharing power, sharing the power and the knowledge that we have to build something in common. Hey there, you're listening to the Inside Out Institute podcast. My name is Steph Boulay, and in this episode, we're talking about co-design, that is, co-design in the field of eating disorders and eating disorder research. So you might be wondering, what exactly is co-design and why are we talking about it? We will get to that later in the podcast with our expert guest from Deakin University, Associate Professor Genevieve Pepin. But first, we're going to hear from Shannon Calvert, who lives in Perth in Western Australia. She has a lived experience of an eating disorder that was severe and enduring and lasted about 30 years. Mostly anorexia nervosa, but also bulimia nervosa and other atypical presentations that left her in and out of hospital for many, many years. But a few years ago, things turned around for Shannon, and in this episode, she shares her powerful story of recovery. And a warning, we do discuss death and preparing for end of life, which may be distressing for some people. I was in and out of hospital for most of my teens, I would say, and unfortunately, it was really difficult for me to continue with school and so on. And then I continued with my eating, so I never quite managed to have an opportunity of recovery. And unfortunately, just over time, without actually accessing evidence-based treatment, my weight, my eating, my behaviours were never consistently supported or managed because I wasn't restoring weight and because I was I was unfortunately able to um, eat probably or, or, or manage my um, eating disorder behaviors these repercussions got significantly worse I had experienced a, a severe seizure um, we actually didn't know if there were a couple of times that I was experiencing uh, small strokes so we actually started to prepare uh, me for end of life a few times actually but in particular in 2011 Um, And then again in 2014, people started to think that I wasn't going to survive this. And and again, I wasn't with a team that really understood eating disorders. They'd now seen someone in front of them that had been unwell for a very long time, and they just didn't see a way for me to come out of it. Um, And I think just at that point, people felt that um, because I'd had it for such a long time and because I was so unwell, that there was no hope for me and no hope for recovery. And then after a few incidences, the conversation was had that I was going to at the time, they probably wouldn't have this conversation these days that I was going to die from my eating disorder. And that's that's really what we were prepared to happen. We also knew that I couldn't access um, appropriate care at that point. Um, no one was going to take me on. I mean, we literally put a lot of things in place um, and expected me to, expected to lose my life from my eating disorder, not once, but several times, which was always scary. I mean, I don't know how my poor mother dealt with every day having to get up not knowing whether I was going to make it or every night when I'd go to the bathroom and she didn't know if I'd come out. Um, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. So it was a very frightening time for her. And when you know that people around you are expecting you to to die, then you start. I started to think, I just started to accept it. As I started to decline and become even more and more unwell, I started to reflect on what this experience would be like for people later on down the line. And so I became really determined that someone wasn't going to go through what I was going through. And I also knew what it was like for me to have really inappropriate, non-trauma-informed treatment and helpful treatment as well. And I just thought, people can't go through this. So even though I was really frightened, I 
I thought if I'm not going to die, this is what I was going to do. And I was going to tell as many people as I could about what eating disorders do in people's lives and the importance of why we need to hold on to hope for them and, and give them the right treatment. Yeah, and I didn't realize that was probably one thing that helped me going even through that really dark time. My mother, who was probably my other half, she was the one person that had never given up on me and fortunately was there for me for the many, many years and darkest hours. Um, sadly, she was diagnosed with a terminal illness and I think just about a year, year and a half before I started to approach recovery, she um, unfortunately passed away and I had the privilege of caring for her until her end of life. I think it's just the power of empathy, right? Because when you're in your darkest hour, it's hard to know that anyone can actually understand. And of course, my mother, of course, everyone was giving up on her. She didn't have, have the right to even explore what recovery might look for her. I knew what it was like to be in my deepest, darkest hour. I knew what I needed at that time. I knew how afraid I was. And so the times that I spent with her were enveloped with love and getting through the ups and the downs of both of our fears. And also just the opportunity for us to have really honest, transparent conversations with each other. And I remember we had the conversation at her bedside in terms of the fact that she was she was going to die. And I I couldn't imagine my life without her. Um, and I remember saying to her, I said, Mom, I said, I just want to go with you. I will never forget what she said. And she said, yeah, no, I know my girl. She says, I don't know you do. She said, but you're going to live and you're going to get through this. I remember hearing her say it going, and it had been the back of my mind going, I'll just agree with her because she has a right now to just have some inner peace. But I didn't believe it. I never forgot what she said. And to be honest, I think it was just in her way of loving me authentically and unconditionally that she truly believed that I had the inner strength that was so beyond the eating disorder. She believed in me as her child, as this person that she's always known. After she died, I was very unwell. It, it wasn't something like everyone said, oh, that's what happened. Your mother died and it changed everything because, you know, you wanted to recover. It didn't. I, I just wanted to follow through and I wanted to be with her. And, you know, eating disorders can take you into a really dark place. Um, and it was around that time that everyone did start to actually give up. But besides a, a, a very compassionate psychologist and dietitian, um, and they refused to give up on me. They did what they could to help support me through accessing care. And it was a rough ride. But I think knowing mum held on to that hope for me um, was something that I never let go of. So she never got to see my recovery, unfortunately. She never actually, um, but I like to say that she's always by my side. Even though I had my eating disorder for a very long time, it certainly didn't take 30 years for me to recover. It was probably um, in the last, say, three to four years of my recovery that I was able to access a multidisciplinary team of support. Um, they just wouldn't give up on me. They were so determined that I needed compassionate and supportive care. Look, I, th I have to say it's their persistence. They continue to hold on to hope for me. Plants are really powerful seed in terms of if you're sort of having these wonderful people around you that are determined not to give up, you know, gradually you start to think, well, maybe, maybe this is worth the fight, and it was. I think working on recovery is probably the hardest thing anyone will ever do when they're experiencing an eating disorder. Honestly, I got up and I fell down so many times. I hit the ground incredibly hard and it was, in, it was tempting and seductive to stay down there. It just seemed easier. But in terms of persistence and seeing what's on the other side, of course, it's absolutely worth it. You're listening to the Inside Out Institute podcast. 
If you or a loved one needs support, please head to our website or call the National Eating Disorders Helpline at Butterfly on 1800 33 46 73. We'll hear more from Shannon a little later in the episode because her experience has led to some really important advocacy work in mental health and involvement in co-design projects. Of course, co-design is the theme of this episode – and to explain what co-design actually is and why it's important in eating disorder research, I caught up over Zoom with Associate Professor Genevieve Pepin from Deakin University. Genevieve's done a lot of research with and for carers, but she started her career as an occupational therapist, and that's really influenced the way that she's approached much of her research. I think co-design has, has progressed over the years. Increasingly, we're moving away from researchers or, or academics or clinicians designing research. And once it's all done, then we invite carers or, or consumers of services to say, this is what we've developed. What do you think? We've moved away from that to actually have the carers or the, the consumers part of the team that makes the decisions. The minute that there's an idea, you include the person that the intervention or the program or the strategy is designed for. You include them right from the start. That's how you can really start doing real co-design. How can we include co-design in research like every step of the way? Co-designing something is sharing power, sharing the power and the knowledge that we have to build something in common. It's about doing collaboratively and doing together. It means that you have to let go of your ego. And sometimes there are egos in research, but you have to let go of that and be welcoming enough and open-minded enough to say, this person here in front of me who is a carer has the same um, amount of richness of knowledge than I have. It's different. I, have, I bring my expertise and my knowledge and, and my experience and they bring theirs. There's no hierarchy. There's no one else who's better than someone else. It's really a horizontal process where power is shared, knowledge is shared, and all of that is brought together to create something that is meaningful. And I think another principle of co-design beyond the sharing the power is also taking the time to prioritize and build strong, meaningful relationships. For me, it was really important to take the time to sit down and listen to carers' stories. And that's what I started doing really early on um, in my career as an occupational therapist, as a clinician, but also in my academic career, taking the time to listen to their story and then ask them, what are the questions that you have or what are the things that are really challenging for you? And maybe I can come up with a research question and we can get students to help doing some research. For me, it's really about starting from the ground up, from the reality of the carers up and asking questions that make sense to them. Why is that in particularly important in eating disorders? I think there's a lot to lose. If we don't work collaboratively, if we, if we don't use co-design, we're creating research that is, that it's almost like you're in parallel. Like you're never on the freeway. You're just always on the side street. You never, you, you never get to where you want to get. Or if you get there, it's going to take you a while because you need to get back on the main road. So I think if we don't work collaboratively, genuine collaboration and using co-design, I think we often like just a little bit often, it's like, okay, I need to come back in now. 
So is there any um, research example, like a specific paper that you've worked on or anything like that that you might be able to share with us? There's a lot of the work that I've done around the collaborative care skill building workshop, which is an intervention that was developed by Janet Treasure and her colleagues in the UK in the mid 2000s. And she started that way before me. She's much more experienced than me, but started by the work that she had been doing with carers and listening to their stories, helped her design that intervention. Um, That is about building the skills of carers so they can better support their loved one with an eating disorder. And that's what I sort of transferred here and, and implemented this intervention here in Australia, working with carers again and to hear their story. And if it made sense and if they're the same stories that I've heard in in Canada, and they're all the same stories. So it's about building that relationship with them and working collaboratively with them to implement the the collaborative care skill building workshop that we've done. And there's, yeah, there's a few other questions as well. There's a, a study that's going to start quite soon around the experience of going to the emergency department when you have an eating disorder. And another study that we're also going to start next year around the functional impact of living with an eating disorder and the impact on loneliness and social isolation as well. So you mentioned some of your um, research coming up. What, what are you most excited about at the moment in terms of research? Oh, my God. What am I most excited? I'm very excited about the fact that there's money towards research. and. If there's money, it's because them, those who own the money, or not own but have the money, have heard that eating disorders is serious and needs to be there needs to be more research, more services, more support. The fact that we have that there is money now means that things have been sort of bubbling on the surface and now we're starting to see changes. There's a, a project in Victoria around the residential um, residential services that I'm involved in that I think is amazing that you have a whole group of people from carers, consumer of services, clinicians, researchers, all together looking at how can we create something that is going to work and is going to help. So I think that that's that's really exciting. And look, I have I have to be honest and say, that the, the 10 priorities and the strategy, I think, you know, the national strategy for eating disorders, research and translation, there's nothing like that anywhere else. I think that is really exciting. We're going to get back to our chat with Genevieve in a second. I just wanted to jump in and briefly describe that strategy that Genevieve just mentioned. So Inside Out recently launched the Australian Eating Disorders Research and Translation Strategy. It's the first strategy of its type for any mental illness group in Australia and it basically provides a 10-year roadmap for eating disorder research and its translation into practice, including five strategic priorities and the top 10 research priorities. The development of the strategy was funded by a grant from the Australian Government Department of Health and it's truly an important milestone for the eating disorder community. It took two years to develop two years of collaboration and consultation and workshops across the country. And it represents the collective voice of literally hundreds of people, including people with lived experience, their families and carers, clinicians, service providers and researchers, of course, as well as eating disorder and mental health bodies and organisations and other key stakeholders. I'll put a link to the strategy in the show notes if you're keen to read it. Now, the word co-design is used 22 times in the strategy. Trust me, I counted. And this is because, firstly, the strategy was developed using a co-design approach. And secondly, the strategy highlights co-design as a central approach for any and all future research in the field of eating disorders. 
Now back to Genevieve, who was on the advisory committee for the strategy. I guess what I really liked, um, I'm gonna, it's going to sound funny. I, I liked the fact that I was there because it meant that carers research is recognized. And I remember being at one of the first workshop that we had. Um, we were working like really like, the, again, thinking about co-design, this idea of having participatory means to engage and create and think and discuss and, and pull ideas apart and argue and then agree and all of that in all these different tables. And I remember saying, I know I'm a small fish in a very big sea of researcher. And a few people at my table were like, no, 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 no. Carer's research is really important. And for me, it's like this sort of shift saying, okay, we, we're in, in a way. And when I say we, it's like carers are in as well. It's not me as an individual, but it's the carer's research and the carer's voice is much more present. We had heaps of amazing conversations with carers when we're looking at the priorities and reorganizing things and moving them around and deciding that some are not going to stay. Now we bring them back the really excited and full of energy conversation that we had. And, and very often I would just sit there and think, this is gold. They all have that knowledge and that understanding of living through that and knowing what works and what doesn't work. So embed them. And if you don't co-design and if you don't involve carers, you develop resources that might be fantastic on paper, but are not going to have the impact on people's life and are not going to be as transformational and beneficial as they could be. When you went into the consultations, what was a message or something that you were you really wanted to be able to express or to, to input into those conversations? It was important for me to do my best to make sure that there was space for emerging evidence and emerging research and new things that are going to happen and have, have space for generating new robust again and, and with research that is solid and sound, but having a space to create new evidence, I think for me was important. I feel like it's there and having the carer throughout the whole work and the whole design and the whole decision-making process. And that's what I really liked about these consultations. Was there anything new in the discussions or conversations that you had at the consultations that was surprising to you or something that was like quite insightful that you hadn't thought about before? Did it change your perspective or idea about anything? What really stuck with me was hearing all of that in one space, like a lava lamp. You know, like you have the lava lamp and things are just like drooping, but they all blend. It felt like the consultations were like that, where in one space you had all these different opinions, expertise, experiences that sort of gelled together to create that common goal. Like we all have a common goal, but it just felt like the common goal became clearer to me. Like I, I felt like we were going somewhere. It's not so much about what I learned and, and you always learn new things, but it was much more about the experience of being in a safe space to actually speak up and talk about all our different research and point of views and opinions without feeling that it wouldn't be heard or it wouldn't be relevant or it would be relegated to the end of the list because all the big wigs have more power. I didn't feel that at all. And I think that's, that is what makes that strategy, I think, fantastic. 
what are your thoughts on the final product? Like, what are your hopes for the future of, of the strategy? Well, if I had my way, I would say it should guide everything around eating disorders. That should be what we all use. No matter where you work, no matter how small your service or your research team is, there is something in there for even the small researchers like myself. And I think it's because it was co-designed well. I think it's because there was the sharing of power. There was the, the prioritization of creating relationships and working with people. And again, I think it's because the co-design was implemented very well right from the start. And I think it's also about the skills of the team that led all of that. It had to be led by a very strong team to be able to create that safe space where you can really have a genuine approach to co-design. Now, alongside Genevieve, on the advisory committee was Shannon, who was also involved in a number of workshops. She represented the voice of the lived experience, and she says that the co-design approach was vital. Inside Out, for example, when we started to work on the research and translation strategy, they started to include people with lived experience community, various different health professionals, acknowledge the diversity in those in those areas to work collaboratively um, in consultation. And why that's so important is it prevents us from creating more gaps along the way. And it took time. I think what was so important was that it, it wasn't rushed. They were going to do the work until the outcomes were authentic, they were identified as effective, and we needed something that was that we could actually work with moving forward. One of the top 10 research priorities is do no harm. And this one's particularly important to you. Can you explain why? When we talk about do no harm, obviously there's, there's various different understandings of what harm could look like. I know for me, obviously, I had significant harm done in treatment, but I don't think it was the intention. I think it was just lack of understanding and not having anything that, that the treatment team could actually work with, that they actually didn't know what to model from. Um, they didn't know what evidence-based treatment was. So by do, we can't put people in positions where they're not getting evidence-based appropriate care for their eating disorder. I think by doing that, that's where we could potentially cause harm. If we're putting people into a system that doesn't support eating disorders or doesn't have resources to care for eating disorders, we're not giving them what they need um, in terms of accessing the right care and then potentially harming them, potentially harming the clinicians and the professionals working in that space as well. And then obviously that circulates around to families and that. So I think it's just crucial that if we're going to support people to get treatment for the eating disorder, it needs to be the right care at the right time, but it also needs to be accessible to everybody. And just finally, Shannon, what are your thoughts about the final product, the final strategy, and, and what are your hopes for the future of the strategy? Okay, so, you know, obviously I spoke about my mum before. If you if you turned to my mother and I seven years ago and you asked us if we ever envisaged this happening, honestly, it's definitely not in a million years. And although she's sadly, sadly she's no longer here to see this work, I think as someone, for example, that's been identified as having severe and enduring eating disorders, I am... I feel really, I feel so hopeful because if the strategy is fully implemented, I honestly think and in 10 years time, we won't be using terms like severe and enduring. You know, people will, for one, they'll be identified early with the eating disorder. They will receive the right type of treatment. And most importantly, I think less lives will be lost because we people will have the right to access the best care possible. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Inside Out Institute podcast and thanks to our guests, Shannon Calvert and Genevieve Pepin. I've put a link to the strategy that we discussed in this episode in the show notes, as well as other relevant resources and some papers by Genevieve Pepin. Thanks for joining us and catch you next time. If you or a loved one needs support, please head to our website or call the National Eating Disorders Helpline at Butterfly on 1800 ED HOPE or 1800 33 46 73.